Hebrews 7, Typology, Part 1. The twenty-first talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on January 17, 2016, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. We're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Lest we get bogged down in the swamp forever, I want to press right on. There's a lot of background, so if you're dropping into the middle of this, I think you can keep up, and I hope you can keep up, but it's possible you'll get lost a little bit in some of the particulars. There are several passages that we're juggling all at the same time. The Hebrews 7 passage is what we're trying to understand, but in order to understand that, you have to understand Psalm 110, so we've looked at that some. And you have to understand the account in Genesis 14. And that account is where a dude named Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem and the priest to the Most High God in Salem, which later becomes Jerusalem, has gone out to meet Abraham after he's defeated four kings who've come from the east. He liberates his nephew Lot and gets the plunder back from kings. And I would argue out of gratitude and celebration, the king of Salem comes and meets Abraham, and he brings him bread and wine. And he blesses Abraham and blesses Abraham's God in that context. So those are the passages that we've been looking at and dealing with. I've argued that if we want to understand what Paul is doing in Hebrews chapter 7, we have to understand that he's taking his cues not from Genesis, but from Psalm 110, He's trying to understand what David wrote in Psalm 110. And in doing that, he looks back and tries to understand what David was doing with Genesis 14. Okay, So we've gone over that, and I won't go over that ground again. But we looked in particular at Genesis 14 last week. And what I argued is it's a very straightforward account where the main purpose of the account is to highlight Abraham's faith, his trust in this God who's revealed himself to Abraham, his trust in Yahweh, and it contrasts it by the way he responds to this guy named Melchizedek as opposed to the way he responds to the king of Sodom. Both of them meet Abraham. Melchizedek basically is encouraging Abraham to understand that the victory that he's gained over the four kings was due to the grace of God. It's God who has demonstrated his might and power. It's not that Abraham is such a tough guy and a great general. It's that God has blessed him. Abraham responds by going, yep, that's right. God has blessed me. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, tends to take a different perspective. Abraham, look at all this loot you're entitled to because you have beat up on the kings of the east. I guess all that stuff's yours now to which Abraham says, I vowed to Yahweh that I wouldn't keep even so much as the thong of a sandal that I gained from the victory. And reading between the lines, it would appear that what he said is, a vow, something to the effect, God, if you will give me victory, I won't keep even the thong of a sandal from this. I'm not in this to get rich. I'm in this to liberate my nephew. And if you will simply give me the victory so I can liberate my nephew, I'm content. Something along those lines has been his vow to Yahweh. So he says to the king of Sodom, I made a vow. This is your stuff, not my stuff. Take it. I'm going to give it to you, give you your people back. I'm going to give you all the plunder back. I don't intend to get rich off of this. So all of that's basically to highlight the faith of Abraham who knows, understands, and believes that Yahweh's got his back and Yahweh's taken care of him. It's Yahweh who's given him the victory. Okay, so what that means is Genesis 14 is not about Melchizedek. It's not about the Messiah. It's not about some high priest who's going to come in the future. None of those, it's not about Jesus. Genesis 14 is not teaching us any of those things. To read it as if it were, I'm arguing, would be invalid exegesis, invalid interpretation of the Genesis account. 
that the point is very simply and straightforwardly to make a point about Abraham and particularly Abraham's faith. Okay, so where that left us last week was I wanted to go on a little parenthesis here. Well, what about the issues of how you interpret the Bible? And when you see one event somehow paralleling another event or some connection between two events, what are we to do with that? How are we to understand that? When I was in college and before, it was very widespread to study the Bible according to what they call typology. So you looked at the Old Testament and you, find, you found all kinds of types in the Old Testament. Usually they were types of Christ, but they might be types of salvation or a type of something related to Jesus. But a type was defined as some kind of foreshadowing, some kind of analogous anticipation of what was to come. It very much was falling out of vogue while I was in college, but it has been resurrected. And it is now very fashionable. They don't use the word types that I'm aware of very often anymore, but they talk about echoes or usually echoes, is the, but foreshadowing echoes. That has come back, and in modern academic biblical scholarship, that's very much in fashion. One of my primary mentors was heavy into typology. And one of the earliest projects I ever took on in my life as a Bible teacher is being persuaded that he knew what he was doing. I set out to write a paper or a book defending the practice of typology. But notice I felt the need to defend it because it wasn't obvious that typology made any sense. But I believe that if the one I trusted thought that it made some sense, then I needed to settle for myself the issue, why was this valid exegesis? I got a little ways, a little distance in that, but in the final analysis, I failed. And rather, over time, I came to realize, no, typology is an invalid way of approaching the text. Now, there are relationships between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I would argue, that might legitimately fall into something like the category of a type, but they are relatively few and far between, and they are obvious. They're obvious in the sense that, let's take a classic example. The classic example is when God instructs Moses as the people of Israel are being bit by poisonous vipers, and little by little they're dying off, or maybe it's not even little by little, they're dying off by the bite of these poisonous vipers. So God instructs Moses Make a graven image of one of these vipers and put it on a pole so it can be seen from anywhere in the camp and raise it up high. And if anyone looks upon it after being bit, they will be saved and they won't die. Jesus likens that to himself in John 3, I think it is, chapter 3, and says, that's who I am. That's what I am. Well, that I would argue is obvious because Moses didn't decide to stick a snake on a pole, God told him to do that. God instructed him to do that. And if you're Moses or anyone else in Israel at that time, and you're half thinking about this thing, the question is going to arise, okay, you're going to save me if I believe in you and your promise, but you symbolize that promise in the form of a poisonous snake on a pole. Why? Why a poisonous snake on a pole? Why the cause of our death being displayed and put right out there, and that if we will simply look at that, we will be saved? Why are you doing that? It invites you to reflect on what God's purpose was, because it's clearly purposive. He clearly had something in mind when he gave them that particular instruction. So I would argue that that's pretty transparently a way that God was saying, ultimately, to be saved from eternal death, the one who's going to be saved from eternal death is the one who's going to look intently on the message of the cross. And what is the message of the cross? That here's what you deserve. Here's who you are. You are the source of your own death. And you hanging on a cross is what you deserve. If I can look at that and embrace it and say, God, save me. I acknowledge the truth of your message. Save me. That's exactly how salvation works in the gospel. Well, God was having Moses basically create a kind of performance art 
right there to drive home the point that it's the person who believes the truth about their own condemnation that is going to receive mercy and be saved by God. Okay, is that a type? Okay, that's a type. We could legitimately call that a type, I think. But those sorts of things are relatively few and far between. Contrast that with what was often called a type when I was looking at these things. Rahab hides the spies from Israel in Jericho. She hides them in her room, sends the pursuers off a different direction, and then she lowers them down the outside wall through the window of her room with a scarlet rope, a scarlet cord. Ah, that's the blood of Jesus. Because it's scarlet, that is a type of the blood of Jesus. Well, as you're reading that account, you've got to be looking for a connection to make a connection between a rope and the blood of Jesus. And the connection you make is, oh, it's the same color, right? Or at least it's the same color as we call it in the hymns. So that must be the blood of Jesus. But there's no way in the historical account that you would even ask the question. Now, she's using a rope here. Why is she using a rope? And why is it scarlet? Now, that might seem more reasonable, except my understanding is Jericho was known for producing a scarlet dye. Now, I'm trusting other people's information here, but assuming that's true, then scarlet ropes would not have been unusual, perhaps, in Jericho. But in any case, I doubt if she picked the rope for its color. She's wanting to get them out. She's wanting to get them out quickly. It's the rope that was available to her, and she let them out using that rope that was available to her. It doesn't invite further reflection. It doesn't invite my asking the question, now, what's the real meaning of this? So to make that into a type is, I would argue, illegitimate and invalid. It's not an intelligent thing to do, not an intelligent way to read the text. But it's very common among, once you get started down the road of doing typology, you're looking for them everywhere, and it invites you to be creative and imaginative and inventive. And once you put your imagination to work, you can find connections anywhere you want to. And that's the problem, is we have to make a distinction between connections between events that are really there objectively, substantially, in the purposes of God, and connections that we have just imagined to exist. Okay, anyway, that's what I want to spend the rest of the evening talking about is how we think about that. So let's do a case study in faulty exegesis, I would argue, of the Melchizedek account that we just looked at. What I'm going to do here is offer some ways of looking at the Melchizedek account that I think imitate, perhaps you'll say create a parody of, but kind of imitate what you might find in modern commentaries or books by modern biblical scholars. One thing we might do is we might look at Luke twenty-two fourteen through 20. You can turn there if you want to. Luke twenty-two fourteen through 20 is simply the upper room where Jesus first takes some bread and then a cup and offers it at the last Passover dinner before his crucifixion. Very famous scene, you know the drill. So he, this is my body, this is my blood, that scene. Okay, one way we might think about that is we can ask the question now, why is Luke portraying Jesus as offering bread and wine to the disciples? What is it that Luke wants to tell us? Now, the assumption here is Luke's whole agenda in the Gospel of Luke is to give us his take on Jesus. Who is Jesus? How should we think about Jesus? How should we look at Jesus? How important is Jesus? And he wants to convince us that Jesus is really, really important, so we will be his followers and, I don't know, give money to the, I I don't know, but so that we will become his followers. This is not about history. This is not about Jesus. This is not about objective reality. This is a person wanting to, I'll use the word persuade, but what I'm going to argue is, this is about a person wanting to manipulate you wanting to manipulate you through a kind of sophistry into believing something that you wouldn't otherwise believe if he didn't sort of use his little intellectual tricks here to get you to think that Jesus is really pretty important. So what does he want? Maybe I can convince them that Jesus is the true Melchizedek. That's what I'll do. I'll convince them that Jesus is the true Melchizedek. And how am I going to do that? 
Well, Melchizedek brought bread and wine to Abraham. So that's why Jesus is offering bread and wine to his disciples, because he's imitating. That's an echo, right? That's an echo of the Melchizedek account. And that echo is intended to make the point that Jesus is the true Melchizedek. And in understanding that, we'll understand he's not just some old ordinary peasant from Galilee. He's a big deal. And since he's a big deal, let's follow him. Now, the underlying assumption in this kind of biblical scholarship is nothing you read in the Bible is actually like true. It didn't actually happen the way it's described. Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. He only became the Messiah because a group of really creative thinkers packaged him and sold him to us in a particular way to bring us to belief and to bring us to a point where we were willing to commit our lives to following Jesus or something like that. So obviously that's the assumption behind this kind of reading of it. So on this reading, it doesn't really matter what Jesus actually did in the upper room. It doesn't actually matter whether he even ever was in the upper room. It doesn't really matter whether there really was a last Passover dinner. But if there was, he could have offered him graham crackers and milk, and it would have been just fine. Luke isn't going to say that. Luke is going to say bread and wine because he wants to create an echo with Melchizedek. Okay, you follow? That would be the most extremely radically skeptical and, I'll use the word liberal, approach to the Bible. That's the way they might think about it. So the echo is something that the biblical author created. It's not objectively there. It's created by the clever imagination of the biblical author. A more conservative approach, someone like N.T. Wright, for example, would be more inclined to say something, and I'm not saying that he said this about this passage, I don't know, but this is imitating things he's done elsewhere. It's not Luke who's doing it, it's Jesus who's doing it. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that he's the true Melchizedek. So what does he do? He gets this clever idea at this meal that they're having together to offer them bread and wine. And by doing that, Jesus is creating an echo of Melchizedek. And the purpose, of course, is that any astute disciples among them will understand that he's trying to suggest that he is the true Melchizedek. So it's not on Luke, it's on Jesus to have created this echo. It does matter on this interpretation that Jesus actually did what Luke says he did, because it's Jesus who's actually doing it. Okay, that's a little bit too out there for your really hardcore conservative Bible student. So a more conservative Bible student who doesn't mind the approach but doesn't like the assumptions, is going to come along and say, well, no, it's not really Jesus who's doing it deliberately. It's God who wants us to understand that Jesus is the true Messiah. So God is behind this. God causes Jesus to choose to offer bread and wine to his disciples at the Last Supper. And by doing so, he intends to create an echo of Melchizedek, the purpose being that if we are astute enough, we will understand that that very act is telling us and signifying and showing us that Jesus is the true Melchizedek. And there, of course, it matters greatly that it actually occurred the way Luke records it. Okay, that's looking at the New Testament as it might look back at the Old Testament. Let's go the other direction now. What if we're not studying Luke, but we're studying Genesis? We might look at that and say Moses or the author of Genesis, whoever he is, by some kind of divine enlightenment, he wants his readers to understand something about the Messiah who is to come. So he deliberately creates a foreshadowing of the Messiah by having Melchizedek act in a manner that will reflect how the Messiah is going to act at the Last Supper. God knows how the Messiah is going to act at the Last Supper and what he's going to do. He wants to foreshadow that, So he has Melchizedek offer bread and wine as a foreshadowing, as an echoing. I don't know if you call it an echo that direction, but as a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do. And the enlightened reader will look at Genesis and they'll know and understand that in Melchizedek, he's seen some kind of likeness to the Messiah. Or there's another option. Although Moses, or the author of Genesis, is totally clueless and oblivious to anything that's going on, God wants the reader of the Bible to read the Melchizedek account and understand something about the Messiah who's to come. 
So God deliberately, providentially determines history and the history of the Melchizedek account so that he is foreshadowing the Messiah in the way that Melchizedek acts by bringing the bread and wine. Well, those of us who are enlightened after Jesus will look back and we will know and understand that in Melchizedek, he's seeing a likeness of the Messiah. Okay, let me ask a few questions about these readings of these accounts. A question that is seldom asked, let alone answered, so what? What if Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of the Messiah? Do I know anything more about the Messiah than I know from Luke by recognizing Melchizedek as a foreshadowing of it? Do I know anything about the Messiah that I don't or wouldn't know some other way by recognizing Melchizedek as a type or a foreshadowing? Does the Genesis account read that way as a foreshadowing of the Messiah teach me anything about the Messiah? I think the answer is no. The only way I recognize a likeness between them is I already know who Jesus is and what he's all about. And certain features of who Jesus is and what he's all about correspond to certain features in Melchizedek. I see the correspondence and I say, oh, okay, there's a correspondence. Yeah, okay, there's a correspondence. What did that correspondence do for me? What did it teach me? How did it instruct me? How did it in any way improve my understanding of the gospel, salvation, the Messiah, or anything for that matter. It doesn't really. In the end, my objection finally into typology back in the day was it's sort of a parlor trick. It's not theologically or doctrinally beneficial. It's just showing off. (laughs) It's look what I see. Look at the correspondence I see. Look at the likeness that I see. Okay, yeah, you see it. What does that do for us exactly? Now, I'm not arguing, so don't misunderstand me here, I'm not arguing that there couldn't be purposes in God creating a connection that don't teach me. They do something else. They accomplish something else. Yeah, that's true. But I'm just saying we need to keep this in perspective. Whatever it is that's happening, if I do see a connection, I'm not being taught anything that I don't already know. So maybe God is doing something else. Let's say that he is intending and purposing a connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. I don't think he is, but let's say he is. Two things need to be kept in mind. If there's nothing to signal to me that God intended a connection, then a reasonable person, I would argue, will and should assume that it is what we typically call a coincidence. Coincidence is a valid category. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But coincidence is a valid category. And sometimes we just need to recognize that I'm dealing with a coincidence here. And one way, the reasonable thing to conclude, if nothing in the account has signaled to me that there's a connection with something else, then I ought to conclude that I'm dealing with a coincidence here. It's a coincidence that Jesus offered bread and wine and Melchizedek offered bread and wine. And then I've already alluded to this. If the connection does not teach me anything, then even if it is really cool that there's a connection that God has created and purposed for his own reasons, it is nothing that I as a Bible interpreter can or should give any particular heed to. It has no real exegetical or theological value, no matter how cool it might be. It might have some kind of subjective value, granted, but it's only subjective, and we have to keep that in mind. It's not an objective value. It's a subjective value. But furthermore, to think about those readings of the Melchizedek account, the readings of the Genesis account conveniently overlook the fact that what Melchizedek does is not actually and really analogous to what Jesus will do in the upper room. There are more differences than there are likenesses between them. The similarity is totally superficial. The only similarity is that bread and wine is offered to Abraham and bread and wine is offered to the disciples. There's your similarity. But from then on, look how different the accounts are. Melchizedek's bread and wine need not have to actually be bread and wine, right? I commented last week that in both Greek and Hebrew, bread in particular can just mean food. It might have been olives, and it would still be called bread. And drink, I would imagine wine is very representative of just drink. I'm sure it was wine because water was not safe 
in the ancient world, so they typically drank wine. But it was drink that he's offering them. And if he happened to have offered them Coca-Cola instead, it wouldn't have changed the account. It wouldn't have changed the meaning of the account. But Jesus' bread and wine was literally bread and wine and had to be bread and wine because he's right in the middle of a ceremony. This is a Seder. This is a Passover meal. And the Passover meal, according to the ritual, according to the midrash of the Passover meal, requires bread at a particular point in time and requires wine at a particular time to be symbolic of what it is that they want it to symbolize. So that had to be bread and wine, but not Melchizedek. Melchizedek's offer of bread and wine was to a man who was in need of refreshment. He had just fought a battle and come back on in an arduous journey. He needs to eat and he needs to drink. He needs sustenance and refreshment. Jesus' offer of bread and wine was to participants in a Passover meal who are stuffed to the gills and don't need another bite, I'm assuming. I would stuff myself to the gills. Mm-hmm. Melchizedek's status and his role was as a king wishing to show gratitude or curry favor, if we get cynical here, either show gratitude or curry favor with someone who's emerged as a powerful person in the region. Jesus' role was as a host of the Seder, of the Passover meal. His role is as a rabbi seeking to teach his disciples something important. Melchizedek's offer of bread and wine was gratuitous and unexpected. No one said, according to the law of God, According to the way we honor God, Melchizedek, you need to go offer Abraham bread and wine. Jesus' offer of bread and wine was absolutely expected. It was downright routine. It was the next thing that everyone knew was going to occur during the Passover celebration. Abraham actually fed on the bread and wine of Melchizedek. Jesus' disciples presumably sampled it. So what's the analogy? There's no real substantial concrete, meaty analogy between what Jesus is doing and what Melchizedek did. They're worlds apart, completely different events, completely different actions by the two men. So when we say that the one is foreshadowing the other, we have to ignore all the substantial differences between them and focus completely on a superficial resemblance between them. Let me go a little further and then I'll open it up for your questions. So how are we to interpret the Old Testament, particularly Old Testament narrative, in its relationship to other Old Testament narratives and its relationship to the New Testament? Well, several things to remember. God is the author of every detail of all of reality, if you believe as I do, if you read the Bible the way I do. I'm a divine determinist. I believe that every nanosecond and every iota, every jot and tittle of all of history and all of reality is completely and totally caused by God, the author of all reality. There isn't anything that he doesn't cause. So if that's the case, then obviously no correspondence and no likeness between any two aspects of reality could ever justly be said to be just a coincidence If what we mean by a coincidence is a connection between two events that we know absolutely has no purpose, no meaning, and no significance whatsoever, how could we possibly say that? No, obviously, God, the author of all reality, has purposes for what he does. And every likeness and every connection that you might see and that you might experience is there because God has purposed it to be the case. So that, of course, is what gives credence to looking for echoes in the Bible created by God, because the way we reason is, well, everything is purposed by God. So what do you mean a coincidence, Jack? Everything has a purpose by God. I agree with that. Everything does have a purpose by God. However, common sense, common sense, rationality, and intelligence tells us that we are to see meaning, purpose, and significance in some correspondences between events, and we are not to see meaning, purpose, and significance in other correspondences that are out there. The latter sort is what we typically call a coincidence. That's a perfectly valid judgment to make about likenesses that we might see. That's not a bogus judgment. That's a perfectly valid judgment that we make. That's just a coincidence. I think it would be completely bizarre to take our divine determinism and argue that there's no such thing as what everybody knows there is. 
a coincidence. Okay, but as I said, divine determinism doesn't readily and immediately leave room for coincidence, so how are we supposed to think about that? Well, if for the sake of argument, we maintain that in the mind and perception of God, literally every likeness and correspondence between two events is meaningful, significant, and purposive. Notice I emphasized in the mind of God. It's meaningful, significant, and purposive. Then how are we to analyze and define this distinction that we make commonsensically between a purposive connection and a coincidental connection? I think we have to define it this way. A connection should be judged to be purposive if the purpose and the meaning and the significance of the connection is discernible by me and is manifest to me. Then it's purposive. But many connections between things, although they may be discernible to God because they were intended and purposed by God, although they may be clear to God, are not at all available to me to see. I don't know what the purpose was. I don't know what the connection was. I don't know what the significance was. And because I not only don't know but can't know, that's what we call a coincidence. Two things that came together, and wow, it's amazing that they came together, and I don't have the foggiest idea why they came together. But they did, and that we call a coincidence. Now, God may have very, very deep and profound purposes for that coincidence. In the mind of God, it's not what we would call a coincidence, but it is to us. And in biblical interpretation, we're the ones that matter, if you understand what I'm saying. I'm the one interpreting it. The question is, what do I see? What do I know? What can I know? And for us, we need to keep in mind the distinction between a purposive connection and a coincidental connection. So the problem of discerning what is and is not a coincidence comes to this. If I'm confronted by a likeness or a similarity or a connection between two events, is it the sort of connection that an intelligent human being would judge to have a determinate purpose and a determinate meaning and a determinate significance? Or is it the sort of connection that an intelligent human being would not judge to have a determinate purpose, meaning, and significance? If not, then it's what we call a coincidence. Okay. So the issue in the interpretation of the Old Testament then comes to this. If I see a connection between some event or some fact or truth and something in the New Testament about Jesus and the elements of the Old Testament, is it the kind of connection that a human being ought to judge to be purposive or is it the kind of connection that a human being ought to judge to be coincidental? If it's the former, then it becomes a part of the meaning of the text and it becomes a part of the meaning of the Bible. If it's just coincidental, then I have to dismiss it as not part of the meaning of the Old Testament event or the Bible. Okay, let me pause there for any questions that I might have raised so far before we press on. Hey, Jack. I'm assuming that a lot of what you're talking about has to do with narrative events as they're described? Yes, yeah, Um, primarily. Could you talk a little bit about how you're understanding things like psalms, poetry, even some of the Old Testament narratives that clearly have an artistic structure? How are you understanding those connections that... Well, a great example is Psalm 110, which we've been looking at, because I think in Psalm 110, even though there is no connection whatsoever between Melchizedek and the coming Messiah... David creates out of Melchizedek a poetic symbol that has a very definite connection with the coming Messiah, but it's David's own creation. Now, the difference between David creating that and me creating that, I could write a paper or I could write a book or I could preach a sermon that creates a connection between Jesus' blood and the crimson cord that Rahab let the spies out of it. But my connection although now a real connection, because I made it, I created it and drew your attention to it, and I purposed it. But who am I? I'm no apostle. I'm no prophet. My sermon's not going to make it into the canon of Scripture. And you should look at what I have to say and say, maybe, maybe not. Let's see if he is making a good point or a bad point. There's nothing authoritative about what I've done. But what David did in Psalm 110 is David functioning as a prophet. He knew something about the coming Messiah And in wanting to convey that which he knew about the coming Messiah, namely, he would be simultaneously king and priest, in order to convey that, he goes to work as a poet and creates this connection 
by inventing this thing called the order of Melchizedek and suggests that the Messiah, when he comes, will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But yeah, he's creating that and imagining that. I want to understand what you're saying here. So I think I need some help understanding how you're seeing that as being different from that first scenario that you described. What if Luke is just creating this pastiche to say what he wants to say about Jesus, and it doesn't matter if it was actually historical or not, because I'm on board with the distinction between the importance of saying, is what's being described historically factual or not? Great, but I think I'm still struggling with the David example, because it sounds like with that example, we have David doing just what you're talking about, where he's... Yeah, that's right. David is doing exactly what, in my first scenario, people are suggesting that Luke is doing. But okay, the problem there is there's nothing about what David is doing that is interpreting Genesis. He doesn't go back and say, see, all he asks us to do is to remember who this dude Melchizedek is. That's all he's requiring of us. And then he's just declaring something to be the case about the coming Messiah in terms that kind of allude to Melchizedek. In my first reading of Luke, he's actually trying to take elements of the story in Genesis and then insert them into the account of Jesus' interaction with his disciples and then say, see, see, it makes him greater than Melchizedek. Well, David wasn't telling us by saying that he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek He's not declaring that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. He's already declared that from the first verse of the psalm. That's not a secret. He's telling us what his role and his function is going to be using, according to the order of Melchizedek, to make his point. He's going to be a priest. You, the greatest human being in all of cosmic reality, I'm going to, I have sworn, I will not change my mind. I'm going to make you a priest. Well, he's just declaring it. He's not hinting at it through echoes. He's declaring it outright. The poetic symbol is a poetic symbol that he uses to declare it. But he's not trying to trick us into believing that. He's saying, I'm David, I'm king, I'm a prophet sent by God, and I'm telling you the Messiah is going to be the king. I mean, the authority rests in that. But in the reading I gave to Luke, he's kind of trying to cleverly steer you toward thinking about Jesus in a particular kind of way by these vague illusions that are subject to interpretation. Now, set that aside. The other problem is there's no substantial correspondence between the bread and wine offered by Melchizedek to Abraham and what Jesus is doing. So as much as the scholar tells me it's an echo, I go, "Ah, I'm not hearing it, man. I'm just not hearing any echoes here. So that's the bigger problem to me, is it's not really, there's no real correspondence to start with. And scholarship will often just assert that there's a correspondence. And it's true. You can see anything if you squint, right? So they get you squinting and looking at it. Okay, look for the correspondence here. And we go, oh, okay, I got it. I see the correspondence. And now they've got us. Because we don't ask the next question but is it a real correspondence or am I just seeing the correspondence because I'm squinting right? And that's my plea is let's not be manipulated into seeing things that aren't actually there because we've learned to squint. Let's wait for the stuff that really is there. I guess I hadn't actually heard about Luke what you were saying, that people have used Luke to say, because Luke himself doesn't refer back to Melchizedek. The scholars no, I'm, do- totally, I'm totally yeah. making that example right. up. Right, yeah. but scholars apparently have related the bread and wine in both places. No, no, no I'm no sorry. No scholars have done that. Okay. I'm making all that up. Okay, I was thinking you it's, were saying some scholars have said that. No, but they've said things that are that I don't see the difference oh. between the connections they're telling me are there and the connections I'm telling you there that I just made up. Oh, okay. So yeah, I mean, I this, is see- a, this is a parody because okay. I was seeing what you're saying. David actually mentions Melchizedek poetically. Right, and right. And Paul is referring back to David. Right. But nowhere in Luke does it actually 
say anything about Melchizedek. I hadn't really heard that bread and right. wine thing before. Right. So, right. okay. So what David is saying is he's a priest forever, and Paul is referring back to David's comment that he's a priest forever. And that's the only connection. Yeah, yeah. essentially. Okay. So it's more complicated than we've been led to believe because every time we think we see an echo or a piece of the quilt, a repeated pattern, we have to stop and ask ourselves, is it? Exactly. Is it a purposeful coincidence or is it just a coincidence? Now, the opening to Matthew where Matthew repeats the history of Isaiah and his child, he's saying this is like that, right? He's, he's I'm sorry, the opening of Matthew when he... When he talks about the birth of Isaiah's child. Right, right. And he says, this is like that. Just like we were in a fix then, we're in a fix now. Just like God was with us then, God is with us now. Just like God sent a child then, God sends a child now. Now he's saying there's purpose to this coincidence. He's, there's God... God well, he's saying, working out the same. Well, he's saying more than that. Okay. Because in the Isaiah account, the name Emmanuel was a prophetic message, a message to Ahaz and to Judah. The message is God will be with you. Okay, what exactly does that mean? What was that message that God sent to Ahaz through the prophetic message that was encoded in the name given to this child, Emmanuel? Well, Matthew realizes. Ah, in the final analysis, when you figure out what that message meant, this child is the fulfillment of that promise. So if one were to ask when David uses the name of the person in the story, Melchizedek, is he being explanatory or illustrative or is he defending a position with that? He's not defending it. Is he laying down a model? Is he referring to a pre-existing model? No, none of that. You got, I'm just, I keep, if I were sitting, I think we talked about this, if I were sitting in the crowd when David read that for the first time or had it read for the first time, what should I have gotten? Oh, yeah, okay. Or, oh, I never thought about it that way. Or, hmm, curious. I mean, what should have been my response as a... Well, it wouldn't take you long. Now, Paul goes a little bit further in Hebrews 7 than I would if I were sitting in the crowd and I was just trying to think quickly. But you could think quickly and quite quickly come to the conclusion, a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, well, yeah, of course, that makes sense. A king who is a priest. And that's all he needs for the psalm. But Paul unpacks it a little bit further. This is not just any old king who is also a priest, This is the king who's the king of righteousness. This is the king who's the king of shalom. And this is the king whose priesthood is eternal, is timeless. And so he's pattern, but not exactly a model. I don't know the distinction you're making. It's like that, but he wasn't that. Right, that's right. Well, as I think I mentioned one or two weeks ago, notice Paul's language in Hebrews. Now, Melchizedek... Being made like the Son of God endures as a priest forever. He doesn't say Melchizedek had an eternal priesthood. He's saying, of course, he didn't have an eternal priesthood. (laughs) But if we construe him in the way that the very, very sparse details of the account allow us to, we could construe him as a symbol of an eternal priesthood. We have to make him into that symbol. He doesn't come ready-made as that symbol, but we can make him into that symbol. And I think that's what he means by that phrase, being made like the Son of God. So Paul is being illustrative. He is unpacking this model, if you will, even though there never was, quote-unquote, an order of Melchizedek. That's right. Which is also very distracting to the modern ear. Well, just because there's so many people around us, including the Mormon church, who has an order of Melchizedek. And because there are those people who claim such thing exists, that gets distracting because we think, oh, oh, you mean a, a real order. But Yeah, we use that word order, the Jesuit order, right. the Carmelite order. I mean, I can, you can go right. down the list of the Franciscan order. There is a... Uh, institution. 
yeah, there's an institution and there are parameters and there's expected behaviors and, and an emphasis on a certain role, and they don't lead that. Right. And they don't cross over to others. So when we hear the word order, right. we will have a less thoughtful teacher try to defend that. Right. And that's another one of those things that we get hammered with if we've not been taught to think about this very right. deeply. Uh, particularly because is order, with all of the connotations that that has for our ears, the best way to interpret that? Probably not. I can't remember if you qualified whether the distinctions that you're putting out there tonight about the difference between a coincidence, not, not in God's mind, but what we mm-hmm. refer to as a coincidence and a connection, if what you've been talking about is within the context of just the Bible or I, maybe literature or... No, it would actually okay. apply to all of reality and all of life. I'm focused on events okay. that are recorded in the Bible, but I would say exactly the same thing about the rest of life. Okay, so this is a little different than exactly where we've been the last five or ten minutes, but I was having a conversation this weekend with my niece, and she told me about an incident where, uh-huh. I don't know where this is, she saw it on Facebook, so whatever, but <laughs> let's just use it, um, a baby who was abandoned in the forest as a newborn, and it happens to be that the police officer, who I don't know why, for some reason, found the baby, was patrolling that area, or had reason to, or something, was a woman who was lactating. She was hmm. currently breastfeeding her wow. own child, and um, she... Saved its life by... Mm-hmm by breastfeeding it. And so when I hear something like that, I'm reminded in a certain way. My attention is brought to sometimes God acts in really amazingly loving, kind ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of that. Like, that's what happens sometimes. And things like that, to some extent, have happened in my life, and I'm grateful for those. And I realize that God also was contributed to giving me a migraine yesterday. So, I mean, there's... Mm -hmm. So my question is, that seems so much more than a coincidence. seems like I'm just seeing God's loving kindness. But there's nothing in that story, or I didn't get some kind of signal or something that within that narrative that you said that one of the distinctions between a coincidence and a connection is that if nothing signals to us in the account that it's a yeah, so I'm trying to fit these things together, and maybe I'm bringing up an example that doesn't quite fit for this distinction, or well, what would you say? Obviously, the question that we all have that I haven't answered is, so what are the criteria that a normal, intelligent human being should use to make a distinction between purposive and coincidental? That's exactly what I'm And I'm not going to be able to give you those criteria. Oftentimes, there are things we know that we can't, tell people how we know them. Now, that's the kind of thing there, if you're that baby that grows up, you're going to have a hard time being convinced that that was not purposive. I would hope that he or she would have a hard time being convinced that that was not purposive. It has God's fingerprints all over it. And that's partly what I mean by signaled. But there is a difference between that and what we're talking about here in the Bible. Because everything, every connection I've already conceded is purposive somehow. God has purpose behind it. But just because everything is purposive doesn't mean everything is part of the meaning of what God is doing that I'm supposed to glean from the account. You see what I'm saying? Now, in this account, it clearly has purpose, and we can infer some very important things about it. Namely, look how merciful God is. Look how much God is what Jesus describes that not a sparrow falls from the sky, but the Father does not know it, how much his attention is focused on caring for every part of his creation, every little insignificant creature within his creation. Nobody is unimportant to God. We can infer all those things, not because it's what the event means, and not because it's what the connection was declaring to us, but how else do we understand why God would do what he did if this is not the character behind it. See what I'm saying? So is there purpose that we can see? Absolutely. Are there things we can infer from it? Absolutely. Is God sending a message to you and me? I don't think so. It's not communicating something to me. It's just God being God and taking care of his creation according to his purposes. 
But when I see him acting according to his purposes, I can know something about him. But typology is always in hermeneutics books, books about biblical interpretation. How are we to read the Bible? How are we to interpret the Bible? How are we supposed to understand what its message is to us? And you have a section on types. Well, recognize that this is a type of Christ, to which the thing that always plagued me was, okay, and if I do recognize that it's a type of Christ, what did the Bible teach me? If it was part of the communication, if it's part of the interpretation that I'm supposed to give to God's revelation to me, what did he reveal to me? And the answer always, well, nothing. Nothing that I didn't already know. I had to know it in order to even think that there was a connection. So in that event that you described, is God communicating something to somebody or is God just being God? I think God is just being God. That's helpful. And boy, there's so much more that we could get into. But I'm done. Thank you. Comment and a question. The typology idea that I grew up with, too, was the same kind of thing. I think it was a huge distraction from the real meaning of Scripture. Exactly. Because all the time when I was growing up, all that kind of stuff in the Old Testament, that was the main reason for the Old Testament. Exactly. It was just showing Jesus all the way through. But I didn't really understand what the Old Testament was about because that was the focus of it. That is the the most important point of all, Judy. That's Mm -hmm. exactly right, is that it ends up being a huge distraction. I mean, take the Melchizedek account. You look at the Melchizedek account. Oh, he's a type of Christ. Okay, let's move on. (laughs) But what was the account trying to teach us by that? Well, we never get that far because we just got distracted by the fact that we found another type of Christ. Yeah, that's exactly the point is that it's so important that we understand what the Bible is trying to reveal to us and is trying to teach us. And let's not go on this red herring of looking for connections just for the sake of finding connections that in the end don't mean anything to us anyway, once we've found them. That's a very good point. And my question, when, I guess, Paul talks about that he was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek and compares it to or contrasts it with the order of Levi... Levi, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So it seems like the order of Melchizedek is almost like the anti-order. Uh-huh. The Levite priests are the uh-huh. order, and the reason that Jesus is like Melchizedek is that he doesn't have that ancestry, that. and so it, where did it come from? Yeah. And where did it go? We don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I'll probably look more at that as we get back to Hebrews, because that's exactly the point Paul makes. Yeah, he's the anti-Levite. The way typology was always used back in the day, was as an apologetic tool, is that you found all these types, and then you said, how can this not be the word of God? Look at all these connections. Well, if you're going to use it as an apologetic tool, then how is a skeptic going to look at that? Put on your skeptic hat. How is a skeptic going to look at that? Look at all those connections. Dude, you just invented those connections. (laughs) Of course you see all kinds of connections because you put them there. How does that prove divine inspiration and that the Bible is the word of God when you see something that ain't there and then say you did it a lot? (laughs) That doesn't hold any water. But that's always the value it had for people was it turned the Bible into what seemed like a really magical book as they expected it to be. And because they expected it to be a magical book as the word of God, seeing evidence of the magic there gave evidence of its inspiration in their thinking. You're teaching me not to underestimate the power of the cool. Yeah, yeah. And I was under the power of the cool because I made that connection between Melchizedek, the bread and the wine, and the... Oh, did you? Oh, I thought it was cool. I thought, <laughs> okay. isn't God being cool here? That's pretty much all I, as far as I went with it. But in order to help me understand more about the technique of exegesis, let's suppose that Jesus had never made the connection between the cross and the staff of the snake. And I came to you and said, hey, Jack, there seems to be this connection between the right. cross and the snake. And you'd right. say, eh, you're under no, the influence I mean, of cool, it, you know. No, I wouldn't say that, or at least I shouldn't. <laughs> I shouldn't say that because what I'm contending is Jesus is pointing out a real connection that actually is there. That's the difference between that and practitioners of typology. Practitioners of typology often are pointing to connections that aren't really there and saying, but it looks like a connection. Isn't that cool? 
I would argue that Jesus is pointing to a connection that God put there. And I don't mean just in his sovereign control of all reality. I mean, he put it there in such a way that he's inviting us to say, God, what are you trying to say to me? What are you trying to teach me by this bizarre solution that you have had Moses create? This is strange, God. What does this mean? And so now, did the people in the time of Moses get it? I don't think so. How could they? Because it's really not until we understand the cross and the crucifixion that all of a sudden we go, oh, that's what you were trying to say to us in the time of Moses. But it really is there, I would argue. So, no, I wouldn't tell you that's your overactive imagination. So you've talked about interpreting scripture and the need to look at a passage and use an intelligent self to determine whether it's a type or a not type. Well, what if you don't trust yourself? What if? I mean, how do you know you get it right? Because you talked about how you thought typology was right. And now fast forward years ago, and you know it's not. Mm -hmm. So doesn't that put us in a position of judge and jury over scripture? What if you know you're not capable of doing that? What if you've looked at yourself and said, I'm a broken human being? So how do you know it's right? Well, I don't think it's possible for any of us to not be capable of it intrinsically. We've had to learn to not be capable of it, to not trust ourselves. We've been educated badly, and we've had people model bad stuff for us. So we live in a crazy world that does crazy stuff all around us, and it does mess with our minds and certainly messes with our self-confidence. We need to be confident because we deserve to be confident. God gave us a human intelligence that works, but that's why we need each other. We screwed each other up, and we need to help fix each other. We need to support each other. And so it's through times like this of dialogue and having other people kind of lend us their eyes. Look at it this way. I know you don't trust your own eyes, but here, let me borrow mine. Look at it the way I'm looking at it. And then ask yourself the question, does that make sense? And over time, we can re-educate ourselves again to begin to trust my own judgment, I think. But I think that's discipleship, is that we're in a lifelong process of learning to know and learning how to know and learning how to follow Jesus. And, but yeah, I appreciate what you're saying. We have really been messed with in all kinds of ways. So I understand why we would go away going, who should I listen to? There's these 15 different voices telling me 15 different things. Who should I listen to? And learn to listen to the people who are listening to God-given intelligence. The only thing I can say. And part of that is a kind of humility. Notice how often in the church, I'll tell you a story. It was just chilling to me. I had just graduated from college, and a friend of mine had graduated from college as well and went off to a seminary. I won't shame the seminary, but... It's a well-known seminary. I had gone off to seminary. And the next summer, we were reunited as interns in the same church. And he told me that he was in a homiletics class, a class on preaching. And the one thing he learned is, when you study a passage, if you're not sure about what the passage means, never mind, teach it with confidence anyway. And declare it, thus saith the Lord. Because if you don't teach it with confidence the people will lose confidence in you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But why should I have confidence in somebody who doesn't have confidence in themselves? I mean, how does that make any sense at all? I was horrified because I didn't know much. I still don't know much, but I didn't know much back then. But one thing I knew for sure is that there is no integrity in pretense, in pretending to know and pretending to have the truth and pretending to understand when you don't understand. That can't possibly be healthy and do anybody any good. That was clear to me. So listen to the voices of people who are confident when they're confident and will tell you when they're not confident and will tell you what their questions are and will tell you what their doubts are and tell you what their uncertainties are. Those people are way more likely to be trustworthy than the people who declare, confidently declare things and accuse you of not being spiritual enough if you don't see it and don't agree with them. That's just playing with your mind, and that's terrible. In, in response to her question, all of these discussions are great. It's great that we get together and deal with the fine points of the Bible. And I, like you, have been 
a little confused and so forth. At the end of the day, it's the heart that says, I may not know all of this stuff, but I do know some things. God is, Jesus died for my sins, and the rest of this is interesting, but it ain't necessary. <laughs> Can we go home now? <laughs> well, thank you for thinking it's interesting. <laughs> We still have more to go, but we're almost out of time. Time for one last question. I'm going to keep on doing this just because, as I said before, I think for a number of you, it's going to be vital that you think these issues through because if you're going to interact at all with academic biblical scholarship, they're going to want you to imitate this. They're going to want you to imitate the echo chamber. And I think we need to be clear to what extent it's valid, to what extent it's not valid, and don't imitate something that shouldn't be imitated. And I'll talk about the dangers next week, if I get that far. And even though I don't understand it all, and I'm learning all along, this is still, what I can pick up is still important to help me be authentic when I am witnessing to somebody that I meet in the grocery store. So little by little, step by step, it's becoming more authentic in my understanding. So it's just... Good. Okay, we'll pick this up next week.